Good morning, church. It's lovely to be back. And um, kicking off an awesome section of Scripture, well, actually carrying on, rather, Mark preaching on Gethsemane last week. I encourage you to listen if you haven't. Um, and uh, this Scripture we're moving into around Jesus moving closer and closer to the cross. It's just hours away. It is profound, and I'm hoping that God gives us much grace this morning to see the wonder of um, what Jesus is doing here and the relevance that it has for you and me this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, won't you please open up to Mark chapter 14, verse 43. Mark chapter 14, verse 43. uh, And you also can follow on the screen if you would prefer. Let's read together. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. And, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. 
And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Friends, we must remember that whenever we come to Gethsemane last week, as we did, it was the moment of victory for Jesus personally. We must remember the cross and the resurrection was victory for us. But Jesus had to walk a trial that was incredibly difficult. And Gethsemane is where he wins. Remember, he's wrestling as to which will he's going to follow. Everything inside of him wants to follow his own will. But he eventually submits to the Father's will. And and, and friends, it's in Gethsemane that the cross is settled. And you notice the change in Jesus from that moment. Every single point of the story after Gethsemane, Jesus is fully submitted to the will of God. He's flowing with the direction of God's will. But I want you to think for a moment as we've read this passage today. I want you to put yourselves in Jesus' shoes one more time in the Garden of Gethsemane after last week. Mark made a very good point. It it was probably the most difficult struggle of Jesus' life emotionally. We know this because he started to sweat blood, right? His stress level was so high that capillaries were bursting in his body and mingling with his sweat and tears. And in that moment, you must remember that Satan was working hard to help the Son of God lean into his own way and abandon the will of the Father. And one of the things I think Satan would have been tossing up in Jesus' mind over and over again was the thought of the kind of people Jesus was actually dying for. Think about this for a moment. He knew what was going to happen. It had been revealed to him. He knew that he was going to be betrayed by Judas. Is Judas the kind of guy that would make your heart pump lumpy custard and go, oh, I'll die for him? Think about he knew that when when the shepherd was going to be struck, the sheep were going to scatter. He knew he was going to be abandoned. Friends, when he looked at his disciples sleeping, it was the first taste of their failure to come. And I want to ask you, would you be willing to die for people like that? Your closest friends abandoning you in the hour of need. Would you, knowing that you were about to be handed over to chief priests brutally, he knew that he was going to be brutally handled by these chief priests and, and crucified. When you think about them in your mind, would they be promoting an endearment in your heart and thinking, well, Jesus, I'll die for them? Or what about Peter's failure today that we read? Jesus predicted right before Gethsemane that, that Peter was going to deny him. And I want to ask you, would you have felt any inclination to go into the path that the Father had for Jesus, which was the cross, which was to be crucified for people such as these? That would be the last kind of person you would want to give up anything for, right? Right? And the thing that I didn't see, and it's the first time I've, I've, I've had to give this some serious thoughts, is 
unless you see the profound decision of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane explained through these characters that Christ is deciding to die for, in the very next breath when Christ settles Gethsemane, you don't begin to see the wonder of the love of God who sent him to the cross for people like that and the wonder of the love of the Son of God who chose, who chose to give his life for people like that. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at how in the heart of Judas, in the heart of these disciples, in the heart of these false witnesses, and in the heart of Peter, we see our own hearts. We see humanity perfectly reflected in these people. And, and the thing that strikes me about every single one of these that we've read this morning in the text is not one of them are worthy of notice. Not one of them are worthy of compassion. Not one of them are worthy of mercy. And yet... Yet the mystery of God's love to decide that he wanted people like these, it's wonderful. I'm praying by the grace of God this morning, Easter wouldn't be an abstract thought or criticism of those who partook in that first story. I want us to see this morning the wonder of how God has chosen to love us. And you see, I... I have to point out to you this morning that Gethsemane is the perfect object lesson of love. Friends, love is not a feeling. It's a decision. That sometimes feelings help and sometimes feelings follow. But nine times out of ten, love is a, a decision to go, a pathway you don't want to according to the flesh in order to please the God who's calling you to do it. And this is very helpful for you and me this morning because it's strange. You know, often when you're preparing for Sunday, you're not quite sure what's going to be shared during worship. But I've been interested about how often decision has come up in the worship. There's the narrow, there's the broad way. Which way are you going to choose? Let me tell you, everything in your life wants to choose the broad way. The, the feeling of going, well, that would be easier. That would make more fleshly sense to my comfort and to my immediate benefit. Verse, this way of God summoning the one who wants to follow Christ and his own son to follow a will which is against the very feeling of the flesh. Wasn't it interesting, any of you watched the Oscars this year? It was the perfect example of how someone didn't turn the other cheek. <laughs> there. The poor guy gets his wife, his, offend, his wife gets offended. What does he do? He gets up and he slaps that guy. And I told you it felt good in that moment. To love, to decide to turn the other cheek, you will not find emotions helping you, friends, but expressing your love for the God who calls you to do it is sometimes in cold blood. What about having to choose to forgive someone? Maybe somebody here is choosing between the narrow and the broad way this morning. Let me tell you, that decision to forgive the one that you want to feel vindicated, that you want a recrimination against, that you are wanting some, some sense of revenge. Friends, you are not going to feel what it means to love God in that moment. But when you decide to do it, you're doing it even if you don't feel it. Maybe today you are in a space where circumstances do not reflect an encouraging space to trust God. But in cold blood, you say, God, I believe. 
I don't feel it, but I believe that you haven't changed and your word is the same. Friends, in those moments, you might not feel like you are loving God, but you are in your decision to make it. And friends, that's how Jesus loved you in that moment of Gethsemane. There was nothing endearing in your life or in those that he was about to die for, but he chose it, not feeling anything. He said, I'm going to do it out of obedience to the Father and out of a decision to love those whom you've given me to die for. And friends, if that can link into your heart this morning, it will change the way you choose to live for Jesus. It will make you start thinking differently about whether you feel like it or not. Obedience is a determination to express our love for this God who bled and died for us and is this example of what it means to love God even when you don't feel it. The reason why I must stress that this morning is this. Friends, the kind of love that Jesus is expressing in this story, it's not transactional. Our way that we choose to love is, let's look at the accounting ledger. Have you done enough debits? Oh, you've been nice to me? I'll be nice to you, right? You're not nice to me? I'm not going to be nice to you. Friends, the essence of what Jesus is proclaiming in the Garden of Gethsemane and the proof of it through this next text that we have read this morning is that the love of God, it's not transactional. It's not according to what you deserve or formulaic. One plus one equals two. It's one plus nothing equals the unconditional eternal love of God for a people that don't deserve it. And friends, when we start to see that that is what genuine love looks like, it is rooted in grace. It is rooted in mercy. Not only do you begin to understand the gospel heart of God for you this morning, but you understand how he's asking you to live in the same way too. Does that make sense? Is your call to love those around you is not transactional. It's a decision to respond in a way that a person doesn't deserve it. And so we're going to look at the fake this morning. Judas. We're going to look at the fickle this morning, the disciples. We're going to look at the fiends. I'll explain what that word means in a moment. The false witnesses. And we're going to look at the failure. And then we're going to look at the faithful Son of God who loved these guys with an extravagant, merciful love. So let's look at the first one this morning, Judas the fake. Mark makes a point in verse 43. It says, And immediately, whilst he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve. Mark stresses that this, there were a lot of Judases in the Bible. So he's, he's first of all helping you know that this was Judas Iscariot. But he's stressing that this was one of Jesus' closest friends. And I don't know about you, but I find Judas a very disturbing character in the Bible. <laughs> if you start to think about it really, about what this guy got away with for three and a half years, you think to yourself, man, this guy was a good actor, right? I mean, let's just take for a moment what Judas represents to us this morning. He represents, he displays the capacity of the human heart for deceit, right? Yo! Judas is the master performer. And we use the word hypocrite. It's from the Greek word Hippocrates, which means an actor or stage player. You are wearing a mask. You are playing a certain role that isn't true to who you are inside. And we know, Jesus said himself, that Judas was never saved. When washing the disciples' feet, Jesus said to Peter, the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Um, he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. John 13, 10 to 11. God, Jesus knew that Judas didn't believe in him. He had not been cleansed by faith. He was never a true believer. He was along for the ride. 
And friends, Judas this morning, he's a master fake. And the thing that gets me, what Mark said last week, it, it really it hit home to me. Not one of his fellow disciples ever suspected him. Isn't that crazy? Judas was preaching. People were getting saved. Judas was commit, uh, doing miracles. Judas had ability to cast out demons. He had all of these amazing external works, yet in his heart there was no true faith. And it was such a well-disguised unbelief that those that were around Jesus never suspected he was the one who was going to betray him. And you've got to ask yourself, what were Judas' motives to do this? I mean, come on. For three and a half years to follow this man, Jesus, and to never truly believe that you needed him, why was he sticking around Jesus? Well, we see that it was because Judas used Jesus. He played the part because Jesus gave him something. He got something from Jesus. He didn't really understand what he really needed from Jesus, but what he wanted, which was prestige. I mean, imagine, oh, I would have been so tempted if I was Judas. Imagine being in the top leader or, 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 or teacher of Israel's times ministry team. Yeah, that's hectic. You walk in, there's, the, there's one of his 12. There's an apostle. And whenever you want to see Jesus, you have to kind of walk through the apostles first. You know, Judas, could you get me in to see Jesus? Sure. Such prestige and being attached to this Jesus. What about money? Don't ask me. Jesus clearly wasn't too concerned about the money bag because he gave it to Judas, right? That's one of my questions to Christ one day is, why did you let that happen? He loved money. He dipped his hand into the money bag, John 12, verse 46 says. And the thing that really kept Jesus, I mean, Judas close to Jesus was his hope for promotion in this world. He wanted to get into Jesus' new government. He suspected that Jesus was going to be a great monarch, and he, a great monarch needs great ministers. And so he was hoping that when they were coming into the city of Jerusalem, they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, it was the moment of revolution. Judas was like, all my three and a half years of sacrifice to follow this man, that he talks all this stuff, but really, who can possibly believe it? Here's my chance to be something in this world. Here's my chance to get where I wanted to go right from the beginning. And when he sees that Jesus does not take opportunity or advantage of this great gift of being the next king, Judas abandons him. And what does he abandon him for? I'll tell you what motivated Judas to sell Jesus over for 20 pieces of silver. He says, well, I better get something out of this. I better get something out of three and a half years. I'm about to get nothing. And in that moment, Judas sells the Son of God for 20 pieces of silver. Not only it is the masterstroke of fakeness, of using somebody to get ahead in life or to secure a position or to find a, a selfish need, but it is also the deep root of ingratitude, right? Imagine selling somebody over for 20 pieces of silver that has never sinned against you. Just think about that. For three and a half years, this man has been in the presence of someone who has loved him perfectly. That's the depth a human heart will go to to put themselves first before anybody else. And friends, I put it to you this morning that if we are honest before God, who sees all, we see some of ourselves in Judas, right? Let's just be honest here. God's not interested in fakeness. <laughs> he sees through it anyway. 
How many of us here this morning know what it's like to choose our friendships carefully in order to make sure we get what we want? How many of us here have used people? It's an ugliness inside of us that we choose the way we orientate ourselves and our hearts towards others based on how does this meet my need first. And also, do you not sometimes marvel at how quick you are to forget God's goodness to you? There are moments where I cannot believe how quickly I've moved from gratitude to grumbling, right? <laughs> this God of heaven, he has been so good to us, amen? He's been so gracious. But like you and me, our capacity to grumble, it is so much like Judas. God's ways have been perfect towards us. Friends, ours have been vastly inferior in terms of what we, what we are owing to him in terms of gratitude. I'll give you an example this morning. I remember being a student, um, and we didn't earn very much, and I, I worked at a hospital, and there was this lovely Italian lady, and she fought for a pay increase. Um, for us, we didn't earn very much, and the pay increase was quite substantial. I remember in the dispensary the one day, they asked me to do something, and I was so angry because I felt abused. Anyone felt like that? I felt abused, and I said out loud, nobody appreciates what we do around here. And she sat there listening, and in that moment, God just said, you know what you've done? One shift after our pay rise was announced, I forgot. My friends, the point I'm making is, Judas chose Gethsemane. I mean, Jesus chose Gethsemane knowing Judas. Jesus chose Gethsemane knowing you. Knowing you and me. Well, let's look at the next one. Is, is, is he died not only for the fickle, he died... Sorry, for the fake, he died for the fickle. Let's look at, the, at point to the disciples. In, in Mark 14 and 15, it says, They all left him and fled. Do you recall last week the words of Peter um, when he said emphatically to Jesus, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same, Mark 14, verse 31. Isn't that something? They all thought, No, we'll never, we'll never leave you, Jesus. We'll go to you unto death. And initially, they want to fight. If you see in the script. Uh, in, the scripture, in the scriptures this morning, uh, Peter pulls out the sword. He, he's thinking this is the moment for revolution. This is the moment for military pushback. And when Jesus says no, they run for their lives. And friends, this morning, isn't it echoing in our own hearts when we hear the bold declarations and the vows of his disciples? Echoing in Gethsemane, but when put to the test, they've abandoned Christ's cause. They've stopped following him. And, and you know, <laughs> in thinking about this this morning, are we not the same? Oh my goodness, when we are with other people, uh, this is what I'm like, and I'm sure you're the same. So I'm preaching amongst the choir this morning. I feel quite safe. Isn't it wonderful on a Sunday, you come in here and you raise your hands. Oh Jesus, you're the best thing ever. You know, I'm so grateful our worship songs have changed because when I was a teenager, a lot of them made me out to be a liar. I'll sing a few for you this morning. Jesus, Lover of my soul, Jesus, I will never let you go. Anyone remember that? What a lie. The nice thing about singing worship songs 10, 20 years ago is you get to assess how you've kept them, right? 80 people in youth group, maybe 30 of them are following the Lord right now. How about this one? I love you with all my heart. 
I love you with all my soul. I think to myself, Lord, how wise the older saints were, seeing that, man, it's not us holding on to Christ, it's Christ holding on to us. Praise God for that. But the point is this, don't you blush when you think about some of your prayers? I do. Oh, Jesus, I'll never stop loving you. I often think to my poor little girl, I don't get it right. God gets it right somehow. I don't. But I often say, so are you ready to not do that again? And she'll say, I'll never do that again. I say, don't say that. (laughs) You know what a Sunday experience is like for somebody who really wants to please the Lord is sometimes you can't sing certain songs quite wholeheartedly as you'd like. That's good. It forces you to wrap your heart around Jesus and to say, Lord, this morning I recognize I'm safe in your performance, not mine. But you see, friends, how many of us on a Sunday come away from a wonderful presence of God? This is me. And on a Monday, the first temptation, the first pressure to choose between the broad and the narrow is we flop. And that's what it's like. Do you know that Jesus, knowing that about you and me, he chose, isn't it wonderful? He chose to die for that kind of human heart which is in you and me. Let's move on this morning. What about the false witness, the the fiends? Oh my goodness me. It says here in Mark 14, verse 56, for many bore false witness against him. Let's look at his trial. Let's look at the kind of human heart that's on display in the trial of Jesus. A fiend is, is, is the English word for someone who is cruel, is brutal, wicked, mischievous. Their intent is to do harm at a, at a brutal level. And, and I, I, want to, I want to just put it to you this morning that this trial of Jesus, it's, it's another part of the disturbing journey to the cross. Can I just take a moment to point out that what was going in the hearts of this ruling council, the Sanhedrin, that was in charge of deciding the sentence of Jesus... Friends, it is the masterclass of prejudice and malice. It was an absolute travesty of justice. I mean, what court meets for the express purpose of declaring someone guilty? That's the point. They don't gather to find out the truth. They only want to do one thing, which is to fast-track a prejudicial conclusion. And I'll show you in a moment of how prejudiced it was to kill a man that they felt threatened by. And, and I want to point out to you just how unjust this trial was. Friends, they completely ignored the facts. If there ever was a moment to examine impartially who this Jesus Christ was and his claims to Messiahhood or Messiahship, it was now. Do you know what was happening in Jerusalem when this trial was happening? It was Passover. That means all the faithful Jews were coming from Galilee, from Judea, from even around the, the local regions to celebrate Passover. And friends, after three and a half years of ministry, don't you think one of those who see, saw Jesus feed 5,000 would have been in Jerusalem? Don't you think somebody who had been healed by Jesus could have easily been um, summoned to the court to say, come show us what Christ have you. Those who had been delivered from demons, those who heard his teaching, those who saw his miracles. If there ever was a moment to summon people to hear the facts about the messiahship of, of the messiahhood of Jesus Christ, it was now. Mary was there. Mary, come tell us about the birth of Jesus. I'm sure some of the shepherds would have been there. If you were a God-fearing Jew, friends, you would have been in that city. And how many people would have been touched by the ministry of Christ that they could have called on to hear the facts? What did they do? They looked for false witnesses. They are so determined 
They are so determined to get rid of this man, they forget that they themselves have paid 20 pieces of silver for his blood. They are so determined to kill this man that they are willing to try as hard as they can to get person come in after one after another after another. Many, it says, friends, if you're on a jury and you can see the trajectory of the, of the stories not matching up, after the 15th and 16th and 17th, surely you recognize something's wrong? Surely you go, something's not right, I smell a rat. But when the chief priest says to these guys, what is your verdict? Then they all say, we condemn him. Friends, on what basis? It is the living proof that no one could, could, could bring any fact to show Christ had sinned and was deserving of death. But despite that, their prejudice and hatred and malice in their hearts was gunning for Jesus. They ignored facts. They ignored process and procedure. I mean, what kind of judge, the high priest, who is responsible for a fair trial, is standing there bullying the guy who's on trial to incriminate himself? Is that rational behavior? Is that human goodness and wisdom being manifest against an innocent man? Friends, it is sheer malice, sheer prejudice. It was jealousy that motivated Jesus' removal and the threat that he was to their prestige and power. And what strikes me about those that are conducting themselves in this way was that they were the nominal church at the time. Doesn't that disturb you? That those who knew, I mean, think about it. You had the scribes sitting in the Sanhedrin, the ruling council judging Jesus. They knew their Bibles. When Herod said, where is the Messiah meant to be born? They could tell him in Bethlehem. How was he supposed to be fulfilled? He was going to be of the tribe of this one. They knew exactly the facts. They had the guys who understood the scriptures. They could have examined Jesus' date of birth, where he was born, how it happened. They could have, they could have seen, joined the dots between scripture and fact and see that this man was perfectly in line to be the Messiah. And what did they do? They killed him. Religiosity was no cure for prejudice. And friends, this morning, I want to ask you, I can see myself in the hearts of these men, and I hope you can too. Can you know the feeling of what it's like to be prejudiced against a person? You can't stand them. They irritate you. You can't stand it when they get maybe a well done that you feel you deserved. You don't like it when you start seeing them progress up the, the ladder of popularity when you get overlooked. You don't like someone that maybe is more gifted or maybe threatens the space where you feel so, so competent and so able. It could be somebody that starts to come along you, into your life where you start to find just a sheer prejudice and malice towards, and you're not interested in looking for their good, you look at their fault. You fault find. You start to go, how can I prove to me already what I want to believe? that you are this person that I don't like. And I want to say this morning, I look at my own life, and I want you to look at yours. How many times have you deliberately maneuvered in such a way to scuttle someone's reputation? You've made sure, you've just suggested a few things or highlighted someone's weaknesses or highlighted someone's incompetencies in order to get ahead. Friends, these false witnesses in their hearts, they're in us. And the way that we manifest brutality is through our mouths. It might not be that you are somebody that likes to punch people and, and, and literally physically abuse them. I hope there's none of you here who are like that. But friends, with our mouths, we can begin to be as 
as heartless and as cruel as what these men are towards Jesus. What high priest who's there to, to, to uphold the law can see a man beaten, see a man being, being so maltreated at the hands of others and celebrated? Friends, there have been moments in our lives where our hearts have done the same. Delighting in the fall of another because it's not us. And friends, this is the kind of people Jesus chose to die for. Not endearing, not in going, oh, I'm such a lovely person. Jesus must have had, a special, had me especially on his mind. It gets him. Friends, let me tell you, we're in Judas. We're in the fickle disciples. We're in the, the fiendish uh, false witnesses. And we see ourselves finally here in, in, in the failure of Peter. If you had to ask me where do I blush the most, it's here in, in, in chapter 14, verse 66 to 72. When he says at the end here, he broke down and wept in verse 72. We see G Peter here realizing for the first time what he's really like. You know, the one redemptive thing that failure can bring into your life is telling you what you really are. And if failure is met with repentant tears, it's a grace gift from God. But friends, this is the moment which I'm trusting God to help us to see afresh, not for the first time maybe, but for the umpteenth time, is to see Peter thinking in Gethsemane, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never desert you, Jesus. Even if it costs me my life, I'll die with you. And his self-certainty and his, his, his sense of self is smashed. The moment he sees when he responds to a little servant girl or when he responds to, to a bunch of, of, of people on the outside of, of, of Jesus' trial, he collapses. And the thing that troubles me personally about Peter is he expresses initially his loyalty by following Jesus from a distance. And I want to say to you this morning as a Christian, you know what this is like. There are times and circumstances when our faith costs us a little bit too much to be too close to Jesus. He wants to try and fulfill his oath but from a distance. And what he does is what we do as Christians, and the world's right when they accuse us of it, they're right. Is what is he doing in trying to be close to Jesus? It's a, it's a double act. He's trying to say to his conscience by trying to be close to Jesus and see what's happening over there in the trial. But how does he do it? He sidles up to the soldiers and looks like them. He comes around the charcoal fire, and you know what? You know what boys do around the fire, right? Throw jokes, <laughs> you know, chat about the latest uh, Jewish football match. What did they play? Javelin throwing, Olympics. And there they are. They, he is, he's chirping. He's making, and that's why they know he's a Galilean, because they recognize his accent. And this little girl goes, hey, man, this guy not only sounds funny, but he looks familiar. And have you ever had it in your life? where someone suggests it's an open door, it's an open door for you to nail your colors to the mask and just say, no, I follow him. Friends, the, the tragedy of, of Peter, what he sees, is how quick his heart is to distance himself from Christ when it costs him. And you and I know what it's like. We, we want to try and so fuse into the world that we can kind of follow Jesus at a distance and still be in with those that we so desperately want the acceptance from. And, and, and a little girl can come, a little servant girl can come and say, who are you? Surely you... I know, you, you, you follow Jesus. Let's make it 21st century. Uh, you, you've spoken about Jesus before. You know, what are you doing around here? Your guy's up on trial. 
And what does he do? Oh, don't know him. What are you talking about? Don't know him at all. Then these guys come again. No, she comes for the second time, and she says, no, no, I'm sure it's you. Come on, Peter. It's round two. You can do it. You can do it. No, I don't know the guy. And then comes the third round, which is the biggest one of all. He invokes a curse. You know what it's like? This is my 21st century interpretation at that moment. You swear, you, you cuss, you, you do something in your language to make you dissociate from the level of standard of righteousness that would, would make you associated with him. You, you, you say something to prove them wrong. And friends, we know what that's like. I remember a mom, knowing her for many, many years, and she has a relationship with the Lord, but her son was going off the rails. And his friends used to come around to the house. And they would sit around the table. And out of nowhere, she was so desperate to seem acceptable to her son's friends, she would swear. Now, now I'm, I'm, I'm just using that as an example. I don't want you to get self-righteous on me here. But there is the space in our lives, which we know, we, we shimmy up. <laughs> we want to follow Christ, but from a distance. And friends, in the end, it leads to, like I, I read in, in Luke yesterday, no man can serve two masters. We collapse when we try and, and live a life of distance from Christ, trying to pick and choose the way that we portray ourselves in public. We collapse. And friends, if we are honest this morning, Christians in the room here, how many times have you compromised on being associated with Christ because it might cost you too much socially? It would happen when I'd run with my running group. Happen when I would be advised with my friends. Broadway, narrowway. And friends, this morning, it is remarkable Jesus, knowing this about Peter, he died for him. Knowing this about us, he died for us. Friends, when we look at Judas and these, these fickle disciples and these, these fiendish false witnesses and this failure of Peter, who cannot look and say, this is me? And the natural conclusion this morning is, why did Jesus choose to die in the light of people like you and me? That's the right response to Easter. He's not going, oh, those bad people, naughty, naughty, naughty. He's going, God, I see me. And this is the wonder, guys, of how Jesus loves you. Is knowing this, knowing this, your propensity in your heart, he says, I choose you. I choose to die for you. Friends, it's not transactional this morning. It's not me feeling like I've somehow made the accounting cut to desire to get mercy from God. It, it's when you start to see the propensities of your own heart and your own fickleness towards a God that you owe everything to and, how, and the people that he's put in this world for you to love. When you start to see the very depths of yourself in this story, you go, how can you die for me? And you realize, that this is what sets the God of the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ radically, radically, makes it radically different to anything this world knows. 
You might be asking the question, what's the difference between the Easter story and Muslims and Hindus and these various world religions? What makes Christianity different? I'll tell you what makes it different. It's this love of God. It's not transactional. There's nothing in his heart that recommends the human race him. It was sheer decision. It says before the foundation of the world, he loved us. He decided that he was going to send his son to die for us, not because of some accounting book that he's holding, that if you make it into the debit side, you're in, but if you're in the credit, you're out. Friends, this morning, this love of God lavished on the world, lavished upon you and me, it is totally, and we are totally unworthy of it. It is entirely by grace. Allah will demand his accounting book when you come to him. The Hindus, you won't quite know which, which God of the million to worship. Uh, you look at Buddha, you look at the philosophies. of these, It is all based on human effort, on human transaction. And if your transactions calculate enough, you're in. But friends, the gospel says you're never going to be in, so I'm coming for you by sheer grace. And this morning, the joy of a people that have engaged with this God of the Bible is awesome worship and wonder and reverence and also humility. Because what can we say to a God who's decided to love us? Can you explain it? No, but are we grateful for it? Amen. Yes, we are. When we start to see God's kindness that led us to repentance, it wasn't the accounting book of works which made something inside of you go to God, oh, look at me, I'm worthy of this affection. God looked at us whilst we were still sinners, and he said to Christ, you go die for them. And in, the, in, in almost, who can have the words to explain it? Christ said yes. He said yes to you. Whilst you were still a sinner, Christ died. At the right time, God died for the ungodly. Doesn't that make you marvel at Jesus this morning? Doesn't that make you want to hold him out to a world who is lost in a sense of hopelessness of self? I mean, if you really start to examine the afterlife, if you really start to examine what, by what way you can live your life for, for this thing that really matters one day, was it worthwhile? Was it right? Was it something which, which met the prerequisite for being a human being? What, the entire purpose of it. Friends, when you start to see that this God has moved towards humanity, not by their works, but by His grace, there's hope, there's joy, there's a sense of being able to look at this God of heaven and go, Does this not make you want to love him more this morning? Hey, doesn't make you want to go, God, I am so thankful you love me despite myself. Doesn't it make you marvel again at the grace of God to come and move towards you through the body and blood of his son? Who can stand and say, look at me. No, no, the gospel is we stand in the presence of God and say, look at Christ. Look at this glorious gift of grace. And it was a partnership. The Father sent him and, the, and Jesus said, yes, praise God. Praise is my hope in a God who doesn't deal with me according to my transactions. But has loved me before I even knew him and wanted to know him and delights in calling me home through the body and blood of, of his son that I don't deserve. That faith is in the, in the performance of somebody else that I can never ever understand fully of why he would want to give it to me, but he does. And faith says, I believe it. And faith calls me to come. This wonderful picture of God's kindness to a people who don't deserve it makes us want to love Jesus. But friends, there's a statement. It's called good news. It is good news this morning. And I want to know, do you believe it? Is there anybody here? 
Is there anybody here who does not know Jesus on these terms? Do you know what I mean this morning? Is there any reason why you have confidence before this God of heaven this morning that he is going to deal with you according to your accounting ledger? Friends, it might have been a past decision, but I hope that blows it out the water for any Christian in the room here this morning. That you are not keeping track of your own righteousness in the hope that God will receive you, even though somewhere in your past you've received Christ. It is as radical as this. God has summoned you to be his own based on sheer grace and the moment you chose to receive the performance of somebody other than your own. But I have to ask you this morning, is there anybody here this morning that you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Would you come to him? Would you see his mercy and his goodness towards yourself? He doesn't deserve it. And would you see the wonder of being received by a God of heaven despite yourself? You must believe. You must believe in Jesus as God's means of grace to you. He is your way. He is your truth. He is your life. And friends, what is the instruction for us who have come to that place already? Well, friends, if you look at the faithfulness of the Son of God for you, doesn't it inspire your faithfulness towards Him? When you see how He has loved you, how can you forsake Him? When you look at what the real meaning of passion is, passion is, is, is the cross. The, the English word passion comes from that description of what Christ did on the cross when He chose. He chose in Gethsemane to love you despite yourself and not feeling anything in, in, in Himself, but He chose to be faithful to the Father and to you when you look at Him wrestling and coming to this place of, of settling His heart to be obedient to the Father for our sake. Can't we do the same for His sake? The power of the message today is not, oh, He did that 2,000 years ago. No, it, it, He wants us to do that for Him. He wants us to see our lives when we're struggling even to the point of not quite shedding blood, but it can feel like that. You, you're struggling with some sin in your life. You're struggling with some predisposition. You want to go another way. And God's saying, this is the way that I want you to honor me. This is what I want you to believe. This is how I want you to behave in response to that person or, or circumstance. Friends, when you choose that, the way that you are inspired to do so is when you look at the, at the son who did it for you. That's how this ministers into your everyday. Why would Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me? He's saying, not just your cross, but you follow him. You look at his example of the encouragement that comes of the Savior who, who gave himself despite feeling anything other than wanting to back out. He gave himself faithfully for you. You do the same. Does any suffering look bigger than what Jesus had to go through? Friends, when, when, who was it this morning that says, I think it was um, Leslie that says, it's tough to be a Christian. Oh, but the hope of it is it was tough for Jesus too and he overcame. And the idea this morning is, friends, when you start to see his cross, yours feels a bit lighter, right? When you start to see his sweating, he said, none, none of you have, uh, Paul said, have come to the point of sweating blood. <laughs> if you get there, I think you'll probably earn the crown just below Jesus, right? But the point is this is, when you face temptation, when you face trial, when you face that, 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 that same struggle, that agony uh, that, that Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remind yourself, I have an example of the one who's overcome. And if he did this for me, and he decided, I'm going to do the same. There are some here this morning that are at a deep crossroads. 
Which way are you going to choose? The thing that will give your heart grace to have the courage to choose the way of the Lord is to fix your eyes on Jesus. When you remember he was beaten for your sake, you'll take a few beatings for him. When you remember that he was forsaken and stood alone, you can take a few moments where you have a few social rejections because of the cost of being associated with Christ. When you recognize that his blood was offered up to the point of death for your salvation, you realize, I can still go further than this. He hasn't set up the cross outside yet to be crucified on. I can do it. Because he's shown me how. Friends, this faithfulness of Jesus unto death on the cross, it is to spur us on to our faithfulness, our loyalty, our fidelity to this incredible Savior who decided, who decided to lay his life down for us. When you see the wonder of this, you have every reason to live for him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you through the cross this morning, we recognize wonder. How can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's love? Died he for me who caused his shame. Lord, I pray as a church would be a people who marvel at the grace of God. Knowing us, oh, what a relief, what a relief to be fully known by the God of heaven and earth and still to be loved by him. What a relief. What a reason to come boldly before you this morning and to thank you with hearts of gratitude and faith for Jesus. Oh God, as we leave this place this morning, I pray we'll leave with such a joy in our hearts of being made yours in Christ that we would have this wonder going into Easter of what it means to marvel that you loved us when we didn't want you <laughs> and didn't deserve you. And nothing much has changed <laughs> except, Lord, we want you now. <laughs> but we still struggle. We know we don't deserve you, but, Lord, you're so willing to give us yourself in Christ, and for that reason we worship you this morning. And I pray, Lord, for anybody here who's been trapped in the cage of self-righteousness, of trying to earn what you are saying. No, you can never be. Lord, I pray there'll be a fresh deliverance, fresh hope to see the joy of what it means to run hard after Christ because of what he's done for us, not because of where we are. 
And I pray that that would give fresh impetus this morning for the one who's fallen down and feels weak and weary and depressed about themselves. Lord, I pray that this morning would reinvigorate their excitement and joy and sufficiency in Christ. That there would be no reason this morning for anyone to hanker back and to feel disqualified to come in Jesus. Lord, we pray as a church you would grow us in this grace. You would make us delight in the God who saved us when we didn't deserve it. And his heart hasn't changed now. And I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who does not yet know Christ, in the way, Lord, that you're calling him to, to see in him the only means of your receiving them, I ask, God, that you would so melt their hearts by your love this morning that you won't let them get away. We're grateful for your word this morning and the joy it brings in helping us see ourselves. But, Lord, more importantly, helping us see Christ. We pray, seal it in our hearts. Bless this week ahead, we ask, especially as Easter approaches. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord bless you. And um, if you want to chat after the service, if you want to come to a place of deep understanding of this wonderful Jesus, won't you come? But otherwise, enjoy coffee and tea. The weather's changed to enjoy it. See you next Sunday.